Nothing can now be made of Phillips witnessing in Samaria. Like the subtitle is the results of the gospel witnessing. Three. The book of Acts is shows the fulfillment of God's promises in Christ and also in the church. In our text, Acts 8, 4 to 25, we see that in Christ, Israel is restored. In this text, God restores the northern kingdom of Israel. And we see that with the inclusion of the inhabitants of Samaria, which is the northern part of the promised land. To give you a little bit of background um, on Samaria, it all begins with Solomon. King Solomon sins against God by unbelieving wives led Solomon away from the Lord, and the Lord split Israel in two kingdoms, the northern southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. In 722, the Assyrian Empire conquered the northern kingdom, and they sent a lot of the inhabitants there in exile and brought people from other nations to go live to land. And so the Samaritans were this mix of people, the people who were originally in the land and people brought from other nations by the Assyrians. So they were living in the northern part of the promised land. They almost practiced the same religion as the Jews, the main difference being the, the location where they worshipped. Old Testament prophets, as we read in Ezekiel 37, foretold of a future restoration and unification of the 12 tribes of Israel. By the time we get to the New Testament times, there was great tension between Jews and Samaritans. In John 4, verse 9, we read that Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. There are also other extra-biblical sources that suggest great animosity between the Jews and Samaritans. In our text, we see that despite this tension, God does beautiful things. Philip here brings the gospel to Samaria. Samaritans believe, and they receive the Holy Spirit. In a way, we can see that the northern kingdom is restored Israel. So we see in this text that the gospel tears down hostile divisions. It reaches influential and influential celebrities. Uh, but what we're going to focus on is three results of the gospel. We see that the gospel leads to joy, leads to unity, and also sometimes serious misunderstanding. So first we're going to look at the gospel producing joy in verses 4 to 8. So in these verses, we read that Philip preaches the gospel in Samaria. The death of Stephen and the persecution of the church led to a scattering of believers. But from the beginning, Jesus is commissioned to the apostles, be my witnesses in Jerusalem first, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And now we're moving into that second movement in the book of Acts. 
persecution. So Philip, we've already heard of him. He was one of the seven Greek-speaking Jews in Acts 6 who was chosen to take care of the widow. Stephen was another one of those who was called as a deacon. And so what he did, we have hints on his message, first Jesus is 
baptism or after the transfiguration, he said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And so as Christians, we are in Christ. We are God's children. And these words are true for us as well. We can rejoice in God who delights in us. We find joy in us. One of the most powerful verses that talks about this concept is Zephaniah 3.17. It really should be in your copy of Bible. This is it. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. The Bible says God sings over his people. We abide in him knowing all this. We will also be a joyful by God's love, we will be joyful and fit to show that we are happy to be together. So this is what this kind of joy can look like in different circumstances. We desire for our Christian marriages to be characterized by joy and delight. These are qualities that we need to practice as they grow. We're not pretending like it's easy. Of Christian parenting is to be delight and singing over our children. The children of Christians must know without a doubt that they are cherished and delighted in. Christian churches, Christian communities, Christian community groups need to communicate to their members that they are happy to be together. Whenever someone walks through these doors, at home or whatever your office is, we want the people who walk in to see the spark in our eyes that communicates they couldn't have arrived early enough. Joy and intense heartache of suffering can coexist. We can suffer and still rejoice that we are together. We can rejoice while we suffer knowing that we can suffer together. The joy of the Lord must be our strength. We must find our joy in God. We must know and meditate on the fact that he rejoices in his children. Remember, he's singing over us. He, um, and then as a result, we can be spreaders of that good news. So first point, the result of the gospel is joy, application, rejoice. Simple. Second, the gospel and receiving the Holy Spirit leads to unity. We see that in verses 9 to 17. So in verses 9 to 13, we see um, further what the Lord does through Philip. People turn from believing in Simon the Magician, the celebrity. And both men and women believe the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus, and they're baptized, according to verse 12, and this includes Simon as well. This is how the good news produces unity. So after the Samaritans believe and are baptized, there's a report that makes it to Jerusalem, and the church in Jerusalem sends John and Peter, verse 14. Once they arrive, they pray that they might receive the Holy Spirit. 
delay between faith and receiving the Holy Spirit is extraordinary. Verse 16, Luke stress that the Holy Spirit had not yet come on them highlights the normal order that this happens at the same time. The result of this delay is that the Jewish Christians get to witness the Samaritans, remember their enemies, who have become Christians also receive the Holy Spirit. Therefore, all Christians are united in Christ by the Holy Spirit. All Christians enjoy the same salvation from sin. The apostles lay their hands on the Samaritans and they receive the Holy Spirit. And this delay as well teaches the Samaritans that they are united to the Jewish Christians. And it's also connected to, if you will, their, their mother church in Jerusalem. So we're not individual Christians. We are all connected to one another by God's Spirit. The first application for us is that Christians are all united in the Spirit. So if there's unity between Jewish and Samaritan Christians, there is also unity between Christians from Palestine and Israel. There is unity between Christians in North Korea, South Korea, Russia, Ukraine, and hey, Walloons and the Flemish. All Christians are fellow heirs with Christ. When Christians hostile nations love each other, they witness powerfully to the transformative power of the gospel. Second application, this is a little bit more theological, concerns the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Understanding the Holy Spirit, trying to put him in a box, is complicated. We kind of want to do that. And the book of Acts really does not help. Every time we read different conversion stories, it seems like events happen in different orders. And so it's hard to figure out what is going on. So um, if there are some more normative texts, I would suggest 1 Corinthians 12.3 that says, No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. And so that implies that if we believe we have the Holy Spirit, we believe in Jesus. We do not need to wait to experience receiving the Holy Spirit after believing, as we saw in this text. This was particular in redemptive history to show the unity between the Jewish Christians and Samaritan Christians, and that it's not necessary anymore. And so if anyone believes today, it is by the power of the Holy Spirit. Acts 8.18 receive the Holy Spirit, as if it was something visible. So you may ask, what was that? How can we know? Can I know whether I have the Holy Spirit? And it's connected with what I've been saying. So far in Acts, there's been different um, outward, visible manifestations of the Holy Spirit. We have seen gifts of speaking in unlearned languages in Acts 2.4. No tongues were mentioned in Acts 2.41 or 4.4.7. There's other conversion accounts. 
other manifestations include joy, ecstasy, now text is also with the Philippian jailer in Acts 16.34, joy seems to be the visible manifestation of having the Holy Spirit. And later in Acts 9, when Paul is converted, he has this evangelistic zeal to make Christ known. So that seems to be another way we can see someone has the Holy Spirit. All that to say, it is going to look cannot put the spirit in a box. If we believe in Jesus and want to follow him, according to 1 Corinthians 12.3, it teaches plainly that we do this because we have the Holy Spirit. Now, third, we're going to see that the gospel also causes confusion with some serious misunderstandings in verses 18 through 25. So in 1824, the focus returns to Simon. Simon wants the power to be able to give the Holy Spirit through laying on of hands and offers the apostles some money. Two things stand out in Peter's answer. First, Peter's rebuke is so harsh that we could wonder if Simon is a true believer. Problem. Peter says, May your silver perish with you. Your heart is not right before God. Repent. Pray that the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. You are in the gall of bitterness and in the bonds of iniquity. The second highlight of Peter's answer is you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. So we're going to talk a little bit about both of these highlights. First, there is confusion about Simon's status before God. So there are about three different views that I decided not to mention. I have a footnote. You can go on the notes on the website and read about those. Um, but yeah, and I looked up different commentators. They had different views.
that you, that that's the um, the view that I'm presenting. Feel free to research the others. But so my thesis is that Peter's choice in Old Testament text suggests that Simon was not a Christian. First application is that we learn by the way we know that we are right with God is if we repent from sins. So we may think that we are believers, but then the things we say or the things we do could reveal that our hearts are in the wrong place. Sometimes uh, people try to find comfort in the phrase, once saved, always saved. My experience has been that every time that phrase is brought up, it's always in the context of sin. Someone has fallen into sin, and instead of focusing on the need to repent, some want to find comfort in the fact that the person in sin a long time ago made a profession of faith. We should not put our confidence in a past experience on one hand, sin in the present. What matters is that in the present, we are looking to Christ and repenting from our sin. Second application is that we need to be discipling young Christians. An application is that as a church, we must be equipping all people for the Christian life, particularly people who are young in their faith. If you would have given me a theological exam straight after becoming a Christian, you probably wouldn't have thought I was a Christian based on how bad my theology was. And I'm still here. So I, I do think I was a believer, just I needed a lot of teaching. I think that's true for a lot of us as well. Unless we grew up in the church and already knew all the answers before becoming a believer. On the other hand, so on one hand, we need to cut each other some slack and not expect perfect answers from the beginning. On the other hand, in this text, we see that wrong interpretations are a serious problem in the church, and we must be dealing with them. We need to be taught the basics of the faith. We need to believe the right things. We need to be taught to do the right things in line with scripture, we also need to learn to hope in the right things. And so any one of you has something to say uh, interested in talking more about the basics of the faith, would love to talk about that. If there's a few of you, we can even start a group. There's a book that I love going through and it's very simple. If you're interested, please come along. Now for the second highlight from Peter's response to Simon concerning manipulating God with money. Peter is clear, you cannot manipulate God with money. Already in Acts 8.13, Luke highlights that uh, what impressed Simon was the sign of great miracles. He seems to care about status as well and wanting to be one of the people who can impart the Holy Spirit on people. When it comes to money and God, there are a lot of implications. 
is an opportunity to bless others and help us provide for our needs, the needs of our family, helps us provide for the poor, helps us to invest in creating great things. Nothing wrong with money. Here at the Mormons, first, God cannot be manipulated. So giving to the church, giving to charitable organizations, our spiritual activities, because where our money goes, our heart goes as well. And yet, we cannot pay bent God's will. Second, uh, wealthy people are not more blessed spiritually than the poor. What matters is dependence on God. So sometimes money can prove to be a problem. Money's still not the problem, but it can lead us to feel less dependent on God. So we don't worship Him as much. Third, the prosperity gospel that teaches that God offers health and wealth to those who show their faith by giving money to church or ministry would fit in the mistake that Peter is trying to highlight. The fact that you can um, buy with your gifts, you can uh, bend God's will in different ways with money. It is a severe sin, and Peter's words would be warranted against those who teach such things. The, this distortion of the truth is so severe that it may also show that some people are not in conclusion. Kind of destroyed my um, So we have begun a new stage in church history as soon as following the stoning, the martyrdom of Stephen, the church now is leaving Jerusalem. The church has left the building. They are now in Samaria. The gospel spreads spreading of the gospel leads to joy, it leads to unity in the church. We also learn the importance of teaching young converts, the importance of turning away from error, not thinking that we can manipulate God. But most importantly, this text reveals the God we worship. He is a God for all people. He is a God who gives joy those who come to him. This joy of knowing the God who created the whole universe from galaxies to atoms, the one who has reigned over all throughout history. He wants to know us personally. He loves us, rejoices over us. He's pleased to be with us individually and also corporately as a church. It is true for us. It is also true that we may consider enemies in other countries that our country may be in conflict with, but whoever it may be, if they are in Christ, they also have that joy that God has for them, and we are united with them. Because God cannot be manipulated with money, he's also he's for the rich, and he's also for the poor. God is for all people, and we seem to keep learning and so may this vision of God sink into our hearts, that it would transform us from the inside out to be a joyful community that practices being happy to be 
together in our church, in our homes, at work, at school, to love people who are not like us, to those who have a correct view of the world. Father, as we are so removed from the original context, this text really loses its shock value. But Father, we rejoice that you have brought the Samaritans into the fold as well. We think of those Old Testament prophecies that predicted, that foresaw the restoration of the northern kingdom, the reunification of the north and south under one who shepherds the descendant of David, who is now our Lord Jesus Christ, who is seated at your right hand, ruling over all things. Father, we rejoice in your mercy. Father, I pray that this has been a challenging text, particularly as we think about joy and maybe how to wrestle being honest with how we feel, perhaps honest about hard situations that we're going through, perhaps times where we wonder where you've been throughout our pain and suffering. Father, I pray you would minister to your people here. Give them that joy that is inexplicable, that is beyond understanding, the fruits of having your spirit. I pray also for unity among us, that we are such a diverse group of people that we are unified through your spirit and our love for you, that you would help us to love one another, and that would be part of our witness as we love people who are different from us in so many ways. I pray all these things in Jesus' name, that we would honor you with our money, and help us and teach us and convict us, and ultimately we would be a people that are generous in our giving, and so 